If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the book of 2 Thessalonians. If you are without a Bible this morning in the pew, uh, sort of things in front of you, the Bible holders, the black ESV Bible in there, will have 2 Thessalonians in the text that we are going to read from 2 Thessalonians on page 989. It is indeed a good day to be in the Lord's house. It's a good day to rest from the craziness and the chaos of everyday life as news cycles, it seems, continue from bad to worse daily, and it doesn't ever seem to take a day off. It's not hard to believe that there are many people in the outside world and many people probably in here who believe that we are living in the last days. We can look out and we can see the reckless, lawless behavior of some. We see the breakdown of order amongst others. From people of every stripe, we see a rampant disregard for those who are in authority. And from those who are in authority, we see a disregarding of the responsibilities that have been placed upon them. People can look at this and come to the conclusion that these are indeed the last days or something like that. The question should be put to us, though, how abnormal days like this are. Has not rampant violence and unrighteousness been sort of the hallmark of Christian life throughout the ages in the church and even before the church just in random human history? Hasn't the ignoring the violation of and the abuse of authority been the core of human leadership throughout that history? Haven't all people who foresee an imminent end to the world, surely that it is coming, have believed that they are living in those last days? I'm not really a historian, but I would assume that throughout the age of the church, because people did readily anticipate and prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they thought they were indeed living in the last days. So we come now to a passage that talks to us about those last days. As they were waiting for these last days to come, and they thought the Lord Jesus would come, What Paul is going to tell us is that there are events that must happen before that fateful day will come. And so we get answers to questions about what the last times and the last days will look like today. I'm going to warn you, they are likely not the answers that you really, really want to have, but they are the answers the Holy Spirit has kept for us. Therefore, they are the answers that we need. Let us read then 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. There we read these words from Paul. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, 
Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is indeed the word of our God. As we begin to look at this text, I want to call your attention, first of all, to scriptural authority. Let's look at the scriptural authority that we have here by looking at three different sort of sets of problems as we go through this text. The first is the problem that belonged to the Thessalonians. For whatever reason, and it's difficult to see why this is the case, the Thessalonians had thought that the day of the Lord had come. And Paul wrote to them already in 1 Corinthians, or not in 1 Corinthians, he didn't write to them there, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about the day of the Lord. And he said, hey, the day of the Lord's going to come, and it shouldn't make you worried or concerned, but it should make your life filled with hope. They had had some of their relatives in the church die, and instead of grieving like those who have no hope, Paul said, hey, you've got to understand that you have hope in the gospel, that Jesus Christ will return, that you will rise and meet him in the air, but only after the dead have arisen. Now, you would think that hearing something like that, that you would have a pretty good understanding of when the day of the Lord comes, like the sky is rent, the Lord returns, dead people come up out of the ground, and you meet the Lord in the air. And outside of that thing happening, the day of the Lord hasn't happened. But for some reason, something has come up in the Thessalonian church that has made them kind of forget everything that Paul has explicitly written and to make them think that the day of the Lord has indeed come. And you would understand that if they truly believed that this was the case, why they would be troubled and shaken in mind and even alarmed. They would have missed the return. Their hopes would have been dashed. All of the, the way in which they were supposed to have their grief tempered by hope, all of that grief would have returned to them in an instant as they thought that all those people who had died had simply died outside of the Lord, that there was no hope for them to have seen them again. In Paul's own words, they would be ones who were left for destruction, or this church that had suffered so much in persecution and affliction would have done so for nothing. The confusion that would have reigned over them at this would have been troubling enough to cause doubt and worry to come over them all. No doubt, faith was shaken. Concern over God's wrath being upon them would have been over everyone, and the weight of their afflictions would have covered them up. So they were troubled. This leads us to Paul's problem. And Paul's problem is that he has no idea what's going on there. He just simply is lost. His previous admonition to them was very clear and kind of explicit, and they seem to have lost track of it. Paul sounds more like a father here than he does in almost any other place in any other letter because he has seen his children hurt, he has seen that they are at wrong, but he's got to address it very carefully. So the first thing he does is comfort them. So he says, listen, we don't want you to be shaken in mind or alarmed. Be comforted. Calm yourselves down. Whatever you think has happened hasn't happened. 
He's trying then to figure out what has happened. He's asking them, well, listen, was it by a word or a letter or a, a spirit? Was it somebody standing up and prophesying is likely what he means by spirit. Did somebody stand up and say, I have a word from the Lord concerning what Paul has told you, and that is that the day of the Lord has already come? It, could it be that somebody had forged a letter from Paul and that Paul is saying, no, listen, that, that wasn't from me? Or could it be that somebody stood up and said, this is what Paul said, but this is what he means? Likely that's what he means by a word, that they are interpreting what he has already written. In every case, Paul says, regardless of what the reason is, none of this came from us. So when he says, or a letter seeming to be from us, he doesn't just mean the letter that seems to be from us. What he means there is that absolutely none of this, regardless if it came from a spirit or a word or a letter, it has any sort of basis in us. We didn't do this to you, okay? So he comforts them. He tries to get at the bottom of what has happened, but he then oh so gently kind of looks at him and says, but that was a really foolish thing to think. In verse five, he basically says, I've already explained all this to you. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you all these things? So like a father who watches his children do something stupid and get hurt, you look at them, you comfort them, you try to understand what they were thinking, and you so gently say, that was really dumb. You shouldn't have done that. Let's not do this again. And Paul is doing the exact same thing, saying, I don't know why you people have been led this way, but be comforted, be calmed. What you think as the case is not truly the case. Now, all of this leads to our real problem with this text. The real problem with this text is not just that it's difficult, because I don't think that if you were in Thessalonica in AD 50, that this text would have been all that difficult. You would have read it, you would have understood exactly what Paul was getting at, and you would have been comforted by it. The problem for us is all that background information that Paul assumes they've got. He's writing basically in code. So one of the best examples of this is precisely after he says, don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He tells them that they know what is restraining him. They know whatever this restrainer is. They know exactly what that is. I've told you before. But he doesn't tell us. And it's really frustrating that he doesn't tell us because we would really like to know what the restrainer is. We'd really like to know who this, this man of lawlessness is. Could you be a little bit more explicit with it? And as we go through here, when we talk about the man of lawlessness, you're going to hear all the reformers in the background whispering really loudly to you, the Pope. And you're going to hear a whole bunch of other people whispering, the Emperor. And it's going to be a whole bunch of cacophony of history talking about who this must be because we don't know. And we have to be content with that. We don't know who it is. We don't have the information that we might like from this. But we also need to rest in the idea that the Holy Spirit very easily could have led Paul to explicitly tell us who the restrainer is or what the restrainer is or who this man of lawlessness was. He could have pointed him out by name had he so chosen, but he didn't. If Paul had explained this thing before, clearly most of the New Testament is written by Paul in Pharaoh's letter, huge chunks of it. The man was not bereft of words he could have let us know, but the Holy Spirit didn't keep it for us. So let us be content with what we have. So many people needlessly speculate on what all of this means, and we don't need to do that. Some of it certainly is somewhat unavoidable, but we should try to limit such speculation. 
So what we have before us, as limiting as we might think it to be, is precisely what the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. And what is that? That is a series of things that must come before the Lord comes. So secondly, we're going to turn our attention to special actions, these things that must occur before the Lord comes. There are three things that occur before the Lord comes that we will work our way through, and then a fourth as the result of what happens when the Lord comes. The first of these actions is the rebellion. The rebellion must happen first. In verse 3, he said, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, meaning the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Certain other translations are going to call this the apostasy. Now, the difference between rebellion and apostasy is simply the idea that in a rebellion, you are simply rebelling against somebody who is placed in authority over you, but you don't have to have any allegiance to that thing. So if you were born and raised in 1760 and you were in America, you might rebel against the king of England, but it's not really apostasy because you haven't actually ever thought, perhaps, that he was truly your king. Apostasy is something more along the lines of you have actually turned to him, recognized this person as an authority, and rejected him at a later time. So it is literally a turning away from something that you recognize. If we read through scholars, they seem to be content with going one way or the other. I don't really think it matters. Both work here. And they work here because in the end, believers, true believers, are never pulled away from God. We have in the book of John, and even here, the very basis of the idea that God will always hang on to his people. After all, it, at the end of the day, it is those who have pleasure in unrighteousness and those who refuse to believe the truth that are actually led astray by the deception. It is not the people who belong to God. Nevertheless, this rebellion seems to be based in religion, and so it's not some sort of secular rebellion either. It is a very particular kind of rebellion. It's religious in nature, and it seems to go beyond the normal types of sin and rebellion and rejection of the gospel that we might see today. This is not a rebellion. It is not the Greeks rejecting God. It is not the Jews rejecting Christ. It is a rebellion that goes far above and beyond that. This is the rebellion of all rebellions. It is the pinnacle of all rebellions. And it is led by one particular individual, and that is the rebeller. I've taken that from Gordon Fee. I think it's helpful because simply calling him the man of lawlessness kind of divorces him from this rebellion, but he seems to be the person at the forefront of this rebellion, whomever this particular gentleman is. We do know some things about him. He is called here the man of lawlessness, probably not in reference to him not wanting to follow the laws of whatever land he happens to be in, but more of a reference to him not wanting to follow the law of God. He is somebody who rejects God in the forms in which God has revealed himself. He is lawless because he doesn't recognize the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't recognize Jesus Christ in the New. He does not recognize any form of authority over him. He is lawless because he is above it all. But Paul can barely mention that without saying that he is the son of destruction as well. That he is doomed for destruction. That he cannot ever think that he can stand up before God and not be doomed to destruction by rejecting God. His fate is indeed sealed and sure. 
and he makes clearly religious claims. He exalts himself against every so-called God, against every object of worship. He takes himself and places himself in the place of God and even proclaims himself to be God. Now, Paul is not, as he so often does, pull this out of the thin air. It's not just that it has been revealed to him, although we might believe that and consider that. He is also bringing this out from the Old Testament, probably from the book of Daniel, although there are passages in Ezekiel and other major prophets that sound a lot like this. It is likely that he is pulling this from the book of Daniel, and I will read you an extended section from that, and you'll see how similar what the book of Daniel says about this particular king is to this rebeller that Paul writes of. This is from Daniel 11, verses 31 through 39. Forces from this king shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action and the wise among the people shall make many understand though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the end of time, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pity attention, shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. This is a ruler who knows absolutely no limit to his power, who is being given power and might by these foreign gods, the help of these foreign gods, he is lifted up. He thinks himself better than gods, better than all things, and he sets himself above all. Now, as you read through Daniel, and if you go through commentaries on Daniel, it's clear that what people point to is a Persian ruler, or a Greco-Persian ruler by the name of Antiochus, or Antiochus, there's many ways you can put it, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And he not only slaughtered a pig in the temple, which is the height of desecration, but he even sat himself in the temple and proclaimed himself to be God. But the most important bit about this for us is that he was not the last person to do something like that. Roman rulers Pompey and Caligula would have done the same. Shortly after Paul wrote this, the emperor Nero would have done the same. These, I think, are meant to be pictures of this sort of rebeller. And Paul is understanding the history of his people, knowing that so many people look at Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes IV and point at him as the one who kind of formulates everything that Daniel is talking about. I think what Paul is doing is saying, that guy 
is like the one who is to come. Sort of like in the Old Testament, we have pictures of what Christ is going to be. He, Pompey, Caligula, others, are simply pictures of this one who is indeed going to be this rebeller. In 1 John 2.18, it's this picture of having many antichrists while awaiting the full antichrist. In John, 1 John 2.18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. That while there are many people who might rebel like this, there is one coming who is the rebeller of rebellers. There is one coming who's the pinnacle of all of them. Just as we have rebellion, but we are awaiting the rebellion. So this man is not just one of these types. He is the type. It is clear that this man has set him up, himself up as religious in authority, replete with miracles and wondrous signs, and even claims to be God. And he is believed. This brings us to the third point, that he is restrained. And so what do we say about the restraint? The restraint is given in verse 6. You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. It makes it sound like if he was being restrained in the first century and it is now the 21st century that this man must be living forever. It doesn't necessarily mean that. All it means is that the, the Lord or whomever is restraining this has not allowed him to be born or to come into his own possession of power. Paul indeed goes on to say the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. When Paul uses the word mystery, he doesn't mean it like a Agatha Christie novel. What he means is something that was hidden in ages long ago but is going to be or has been revealed. Most often the way that Paul uses this is about the collection of the Gentiles into the people of God. He said, this is a mystery. You didn't know that this was going to happen. If you read through the Old Testament, there's really no hints as to how that's going to happen, even though there are hints that it will happen. But that mystery is solved in the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery of lawlessness is then already at work. We might ask the question of why is lawlessness even allowed? If God can restrain evil, why doesn't he restrain it more to allow good people to come into the kingdom of God? Or better yet, to allow sinners to come into the kingdom of God? Why doesn't he pour out his salvation on all people? Why not restrain evil even more? If God wants all people to come to salvation and a knowledge of the truth, as he says in 1 Timothy 2.4, one book over, why allow rebels to continue at all? And why not bring in a great harvest? I think what Paul means to say here is we already see something of the lawlessness. We already see something of this rebellion, even though it might not be clear why it is that God is allowing that to happen. That is actually a topic for another sermon that we can't get to today. But there is lawlessness that happens in the world, and God has a reason for allowing it, but we get to see already a picture of it working Lawlessness already happens. Rebellion already happens, but we do not know why God allows it to happen. But this is nothing compared to what's going to happen once the restrainer is taken away. Once the restrainer is taken away, then there is no more restraint on the evil of mankind. There is no more, more restraint on the idolatry that they desire and they will show. It's 
It's as if the dam breaks. The levees are pulled back and the water is allowed to flow and the tide of rebellion and of sin comes pouring in. And when that happens, it's not just the rebellion that comes in, but at the very head of it is this rebeller, this man who stands astride, picturing himself as very God of gods. Antiochus, Pompey, and Caligula, they are all just restrained examples of what will be an unrestrained rebeller. He is the rebel of rebels. We often talk about total depravity, and when we say total depravity, we don't mean that you are as bad as you can be. What we mean by that is that every good thing you do is somehow laced with evil. It's laced with evil intent or evil desires. You're doing good because you want bad things. You help grandma across the street because you want to be glorified above all things. But there will come a day when total depravity will mean that people do the evil that they want to do as much as they want to do it. That is the kind of thing that we're looking at. We might want to know who the restrainer is. Throughout the ages, people have thought it might be Paul, it might be the Gentile mission, it might be an angel, which I sort of like, It might be the Holy Spirit, but truth be told, we just don't know. We do, however, know the result of all of this. The rebellion, the rebeller, the restraint, and the result, and we know what the result will be. When the restraint is removed, the full brunt of the rebellion and the full brunt of the rebeller is made known, and Jesus puts an end to it. We don't know the timing of this, but we do know the end of it. It is clear and unequivocal. Jesus simply destroys him by the breath of his mouth, by the spirit that he speaks. We're reminded of of that beautiful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where he says, one little word shall fell him. Jesus looks at this man who is filled with all of this power and all of this might and all of this wealth and all of this possession, who sits himself as God above high, and he simply looks at him and he says, go away and he's done with. Paul goes on to say, not only with the breath of his mouth, but he brings to nothing this one by the appearance of his coming. He's brought to nothing by it. That this this rebeller who is the pinnacle of every earthly power and all the earthly wisdom and might and glory that you could possibly imagine being packed into one person, being set above all humanity as the epitome of all that humanity can be in its own might and its own power and its own glory, someone whom the whole world will turn to and long for and praise for his power and his glory. The second, the very second that the Lord shows up. The whole world's like, oh, that's what glory looks like. It'll be nothing. They will look at all of his power and all of his might, everything that he has. And at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will appear worthless and has nothing So great and mighty and glorious is our Lord that even the greatest of men 
filled with all earthly power and might and wonders and miracles and false signs that go beyond anything that you or I can believe or can believe would happen or trust in or see, man, it will all look worthless and weak and empty compared to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we summarize this, and this is by far the main part of what we have to explain, the day of the Lord has not come, and it will not come until the rebellion peaks and the rebeller makes himself known, a rebellion unlike anything that history has seen, lawlessness unlike anything that history has seen. It's not just the apathetic rejection of God in Christ, the way the Romans might have disregarded it or the way the Jews hated it, but it's something more than all of that. The leader of this massive rebellion will set himself indeed in Jesus' place as the head of all authority and worship, and he will be destroyed in a second. Thus, when the sin of mankind and all of their rebellion is at its peak, Jesus will come, and he will put an end to all of it. All of the silly shenanigans, all of the little things that people take and they want to make into God, Jesus will burn it away in a second. That brings us to our third point, the spiritual actors behind all of this. The rebeller is not just a powerful man. He has somebody acting for him, behind him, pushing him on. And Satan, as always, is the person behind this. Satan is the one who provides him with miracles and signs and wonders and all these things that allow him to pull people astray. It's important to note that Paul does not back off on this. You'll notice that in verse 9 he says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power. That there will be a display of power and wonder done by this man that you or I have never seen. And because there is such a display of power, he will lead people astray. Paul does give us the really interesting note, though, that they are false signs. That they are signs meant to lead you astray. They are signs and they are wonders meant to make you think one thing, but that one thing is false and wrong. This man will try through his power to lead people away, and he indeed will do it. And friends, we ought never to forget that behind much of the evil in our world stands human responsibility, but behind that stands Satan. And too many times people think in order for Satan to work or in order for God to work, we need to watch them working with immediacy, directly on us or directly on others. But here we get a picture of Satan working in the world through a puppet, through a man, and doing the evil that he wants him to do. It is Satan, ultimately, who is trying to confuse people, who is trying to delude people, who is trying to pull people away from the truth. The folks who fall for this are indeed those who are destined for it from a long time ago. One is reminded of Jude 4, where Jude writes that certain people creep in unnoticed who were long ago designated for this condemnation. Those who have been set aside fall for these schemes and they are pulled aside. But let's be very clear. 
Satan is not alone in working behind the scenes here. God also works behind the scenes. In verse 11, we have something of a thunderbolt. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Behind Satan trying to delude people and pull them away from the truth, behind the rebellion and the rebeller doing the exact same thing, God himself authorizes, God himself ordains the coming and the allowance of Satan to bring the rebeller and the rebellion to fruition. It is God who does this. Paul seemingly can't get away and not allow him to say, God, he, just, he can't talk about the power of Satan without saying, and even behind that is the power of God over him in order to control all things. It is God who sends them a delusion. It is a difficult bit of scripture. And in our minds we think, well, how could they not have been deluded if God was the one who sent them something to delude them. How are they to fight against God? Paul's simple answer, while a little bit beyond us, while a little bit difficult, while a little bit strange, is nevertheless clear. These were people who didn't want the truth to begin with. They were, in a sense, calling up their own fate. They didn't want the truth. They didn't want to know the truth. They were happy to ignore the truth and therefore all the happier to accept the delusion that God was willing to give to them. So they took it and they ran with it. This is indeed a mystery and it is indeed difficult. We are reminded that God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. All things for believers, all things for unbelievers. The entire course of the world is done under the sovereign hand of God. And it is easy and it's nice and it's, it's great by some people to ignore the sovereignty of God because they don't want to think through the difficult bits of him actually allowing things like this to happen. They think that they are allowing God to escape But if God escapes from allowing things like this to happen, your hope escapes with him. You might receive comfort in thinking that God only allows nice things to come to you. And you might get a little bit of peace thinking that the Almighty is working as hard as he can to give you good things. But all of that comfort is eroded, all of that peace goes the minute that you realize that in all of his love and all of his care and all of his concern he can't actually make it happen for you if god is not sovereign over all things then he can't stop the bad things that are happening to you he can't control them he can't stop them from happening and he can't stop them once they've started so paul for the good of his people, makes it very clear that behind the work of Satan is the work of God, deceiving people and allowing them to be deceived because they themselves did not want the truth. Briefly, then, let's turn to specific applications of this text. I do mean brief. First, be content. Be content with what Scripture gives you. Be content with the answers that it gives you. I know that we we read through scripture all the time and we've got tons of questions about this. We want to know the names and the places and the dates and the times. But be content that you've got this at all. 
This is what the Holy Spirit has kept for you. We believe that this is the word of God. The Holy Spirit didn't keep so much for you. The Holy Spirit could have kept a a Bible that was millions of pages thick and it wouldn't have covered everything that you were going to need in life. Be thankful that we have what we have and cling on to it and trust in it and hold on to it. Secondly, besides being content, be prepared. The main point of this text is a warning to us that there is a rebellion coming. There is going to be this vast, I wouldn't say conspiracy, but this vast rebellion against the nature and the content of God's revelation. And imagine that you are the Thessalonians, not just 21st century Americans who live in not just relative prosperity, but I will tell you flat out prosperity, And think of yourselves as the Thessalonians who suffer from affliction and persecution and then having Paul say, things aren't even bad yet, guys. And the idea is that they are to make sure that they're not being deluded by this word. They're not going to be deluded by this man when he comes. Friends, know that there are indeed deceptions out there. And even as this is a major thing that is coming, minor tides have come in, minor waves come in before this major one does. There's always the danger that you will be led astray. So you must be alert and you must await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that this calls for you to know, especially when there will be a man who will present himself as God on high, who will do vast miracles, is to know exactly who Jesus is, to know exactly what he has done, and to know his word well. The way you keep from being deceived is to know the truth. Paul mentions it several times through here. In verse 10, The wicked deception will be for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth. In verse 11, or excuse me, verse 12, they did not believe the truth. Do you want to keep from falling away? Do you want to keep from perishing? Do you want to keep from being deceived? Know the truth of God. Be prepared. Read the word of God. Know the word of God. Understand the word of God. Thirdly, seek the truth, which probably should have been worded better, but nevertheless, seek the truth. And what I mean by that is don't seek after other things. In the church today, in good Bible-believing churches, a number of people come to church because they want a certain kind of experience. What drives them in choosing churches, what drives them in choosing worship places is the experience that they get there. People want to leave with feelings like comfort or exuberance or ecstasy or peace They want to leave with these emotional highs or comfort or uh, peace that is upon them. And those things aren't bad. We ought to want comfort and peace and the gospel ought to give us comfort and peace. But truth comes first. And comfort and peace and joy and exuberance and exaltation comes not at the expense of truth, but friends, it always comes through it. And Paul is driving that home time and time again. He says, they refuse to love the truth. It is the truth that gives them experience. No doubt, the the display of power and wonders and false signs, no doubt, the feeling of being swept along with everyone else in the world has this lure for people who only want experience. It's 
fun to be part of the in crowd. It will be fun to be part of one who can do all of these miraculous things. This is why Michael Jordan and LeBron James sell so many jerseys. And they can't do miracles. If you look and you want experience, you can easily be deceived because you don't know the truth. That truth is nothing more and nothing less than the gospel that Jesus Christ has come, has died in your place and for your sins and been raised so that you can have eternal life. Trust in him, place all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your being in him and you will be saved and he will come and it will be marvelous and glorious and you will not shrink back in fear or in terror at his coming, but you will scream in joy and happiness and have all of the beautiful emotions that you want because you have known him in truth. And lastly, be comforted. You who cling to Christ, all of you who cling to Christ, will survive the tide of rebellion. All of you who cling to Christ will survive any persecution that comes your way. All of you who cling to Christ will see the truth for what it is. All of you who cling to Christ and continue to cling to Christ will know and will spot the deception when it comes. And you who cling to Christ will follow the shepherd when he calls you. And you will know the rebeller's voice because it will not be the voice of your God. And you won't follow him. You will recognize him for the false shepherd, for the wolf that he is. So prepare yourselves for the day of the Lord. Cling to Christ for all good things and await the appearance and deliverance of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ. I pray that such grace might be seen both in our salvation, our desire for good works, and indeed in our wisdom and knowledge of the truth. May we love Christ himself, not a false Christ of our own deception, not the false Christ of Satan's power, not the false Christ of emotion and experience, but the real Christ of glory, compassion, sacrifice, and joy. May we cling to him and only to him as we face the wiles of the devil and the world. Defeat Satan and all who stand against you. Be merciful to all who call upon you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.